So we've been thinking about Lionheart, and I think this idea of Lionheart is, is difficult because, again, uh, we can fall into the trap of being like courageous and wanting courage and just having everything that comes with what a courageous person looks like. And if we're not careful with our hearts, if we do that, then what tends to happen is we take the status of Lionheart, and then it starts kind of being a stamp upon us where we get the honor, we get all the glory. And tonight, we're going to actually go to a person that seems like a person that we should not be honoring. Uh, he doesn't seem like a hero of the faith. His name is Thomas. And if you know Thomas, if you're growing up in the church, Thomas is not like a good character. He's never kind of seen in a good light. His nickname and his name, probably forever name, is known as what? Doubting Thomas, right? But I'm going to kind of unpack that today to actually say doubt is actually an important part of our faith. It's actually a healthy way of understanding that your faith is this alternating of faith and doubt. And I think it's an important thing because the reason why we should doubt is because if Christianity is true, the implications are huge. Because we're singing all these songs about I'm giving my life, you're my first. And if we sing it without this really sense of understanding what the implication is, then we just kind of just sing these songs without doubting and just kind of say, well, the implications are not big. It's huge because he's first. If I was to say, hey, drink Coke or Pepsi, and I ask you to come, choose, you're not going to doubt. You're like, whatever, man, just give me whatever and just, you know, drink it. But this idea of Christianity is you're going to follow me or not follow me, and the implications are huge. That's why when you read the New Testament, and I know, again, I don't want to kind of put a, put a downer on it, but every time you hear anything about suffering and you use it for your own, like you use that passage, I count all suffering, and we use it for our own lives, like, oh, yeah, 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 this is a passage for me because I'm really having a hard day at work, having a hard day at school. Oh, I'm being persecuted by a group of girls in, our, in, in my school because they don't think I'm cute, da, da, da. And we use that passage, and you're like, oh, yeah, see, God understands my suffering. I'm going to tell you something. That passage has nothing to do with you. It's about a church. There are people chasing them, and they're killing them and their children. And Paul is trying to encourage them to say, you're dying. People are coming after you, and they're after your family, and the brothers and sisters around you whom you love, you broke bread, they're, they're, they're being yanked out of their homes and being thrown to the animals, they're being executed, they're being crucified. And then in the midst of your suffering, I want you to have hope. That's what's it about. And unless you're in that situation... That's what the passage is about. And the early church understood the implications of saying yes to God and saying no to the world was a life and death decision. It was huge. So that's why this implication of going into this faith should be kind of having a measure of doubt because it's huge. And some of us in this room has lived a life where we didn't doubt. We've, this is what I do. I go to church on Sundays. I go and have my, uh, my sermon, listen to the youth pastor, play some games. After I'm done with my games, I go and eat some, uh, uh, what's that, uh, pudding? Uh, uh, Yorkshire pudding. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I heard it's amazing. I, I, yesterday they showed me a picture of Yorkshire pudding, and, and I, 
I, I confess, because I'm just a fat guy, that, uh, like, fat guy, not, like, pH fat. Uh, I literally drool. I had to, like, swallow my drool because it looked so good. So I hope they have, do they have Yorkshire pudding here? They do. Like, tomorrow? Okay, well, better have it because if I don't have it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw down. <laughs> Where was I at? <laughs> See, like a thing of Yorkshire pudding, I'm gone. Um, where was I? Oh, Sundays. You have Yorkshire pudding. And you just think like, oh, you know, this is just what I do. You know, yeah, Jesus, I love you. You're my best. Yes, you're my best friend. You know, Jesus, you're my superhero. You know, all that. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm done. Go back to school, study, play piano class, and you're done. And you go through the th- same motions, and then you realize you're 19, 20 years old. And you're just kind of going through, and you have no idea why you have to think. Then you go to university. Then someone challenges you, and you're like, ooh, I have no idea. That's why in America, we have this thing, and again, I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not, I actually don't believe in it, but there is this, some truth in the weight of what's going on, at least in America. They said, you know, they said it's the last Christian generation. Because we're sending all these kids to university without a proper understanding of their own faith. Because we haven't doubted. When I was growing up in my home, and again, I came from an incredibly dysfunctional family. Uh, dysfunctional means just, like, just jacked. Jacked means, like, messed up. And I kind of shared it with you already. But you kind of hear the story of what my mom went through. And it gives you some color of why I am the way I am, why our family was the way I am. But my parents were just kind of weird because I remember just, and I don't know if your parents do this, but I hear, like, a lot of Chinese parents tell their kids that they're adopted. Did you ever hear that? Uh, oh, no, no, no. Well, they didn't even say that I was adopted, okay? They said that they found me in a garbage can. Have you? Like, what is, why is, like, Chinese families crazy? Like, why do you want to torture your child and say, you know, we didn't give birth to you. We found you in a garbage can. Then my evil sister said, yeah, yeah, I remember that day. You were in the garbage can, we you know, got noodles on your face, and we just peeled back the noodles. And we were like, oh, should we pick him up? Nah, he's kind of ugly. And then like, she does this whole elaborate story. And then she did this crazy thing, because she's evil. She showed a picture of a baby next to a trash can and said, this is you. And the baby was white. <laughs> and I was like, but that doesn't look like me. He has blonde hair. Oh, yeah, you had blonde hair when you were first born, when we found you in the trash and we dyed your hair when you were little. And then we dyed it so much that now it becomes black. And then we taped your eyes. Like, just, like, I'm like, do you have anything to do with your imagination? And, and then, of course, my parents, like, yeah, it's true. So they're, like, feeding her into, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really almost grew up up to, the, like, I was 25. I realized I thought I was adopted. I was found in a garbage can. Just kidding. Not until I was 25. But they, then eventually when I grew up, I looked exactly like my father right? Which is really scary for my wife. Because <laughs> she's like, are you going to look like that in 20 years? I said, yeah, basically. So there's like these huge, not a huge implication, but it really kind of haunted me. And I didn't doubt it for the good part of my life. And then I remember one time asking my mom, I said, okay, well, I might have been born in a garbage can or you found me in a garbage can. So mommy, but where do babies come from? And my mom was like, oh, okay, it's, it's time for the talk time for the talk, sat me down, and he goes, okay, and my father was there, you know, just looking at me, like, you ready? I said, yes, 
Babies come from when you eat watermelon seeds. <laughs> you eat a watermelon seed and it grows in your tummy, and then a baby comes. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Biology, science is amazing. And my mom was like, and my dad was like, you got that? And I said, yeah, I got it. Watermelon. And then one day I was eating watermelon. <laughs> and I accidentally swallowed a seed. And I stuck my finger to throw up to get it out. And I didn't. And the next day my f- stomach started feeling like big. And I went to my school teacher and told her that I was pregnant. This is the same kid, Wong Sung, who was a girl a few years ago. <laughs> They're like, what's wrong with your family? And what's with Chinese parents? Like, they don't... How many of your parents actually taught you how, how babies are made? Ex- oh, awesome. Three out of 200. <laughs> Chinese people have 1.6 billion people. <laughs> Something's happening. <laughs> There's a lot of doing, but not a lot about talking about it. But anyway... Yes, actually, Chinese people make babies. Your, your parents made babies. Okay, how many have younger sisters and brothers? Okay, now, however old is your brother and sister, right? Think, of that, think about that. And then add nine months, your parents were doing something to have that baby. <laughs> All right, just... See, some of you are throwing up. Some of you are checked out already. You're like, I'm gone. Fat camp is over. I'm going home. Mommy, pick me up now. I have traumatic experience from fat camp. I do that so that you can need Jesus now. <laughs> so these things are not like huge implications. Your parents don't teach you about how babies come. It's okay. You can doubt what they say. So after that, I pretty much doubted everything that my, my parents ever said about me. Every like little like, you know, like, wife's tale about when you're pregnant, you need to do this. When your wife gives birth, you need to drink this. You need to wash this. You need to do that. And I just said, forget you because I don't trust you because you told me watermelons make babies. So I doubt it. But here comes a story which is actually pretty big. Is this story of Thomas. And when you look at Thomas from the first stories, when you hear it, it's kind of like, I don't like Thomas. Because Thomas is like the guy in the church, always kind of like, yeah, I don't believe this. It just doesn't make any sense. And, but Thomas, I think, over the years has been a kind of a place for me to ground myself because he was one of those most transparent disciples being really honest. He's not like Peter. Peter talks a lot. You know? That's why you don't hear much about his brother James. Because he's always talking. You know, like when I used to be in a gang, the guy you beat up, the guy you want to fight, the first guy you want to fight is the guy who talks a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter's brother's Andrew. He just gave me this look. Uh, so you don't hear a lot about Andrew because I'm, uh, Peter's always talking. But the guy you want to fight first is the guy who talks a lot. You're the guy who comes up and you're like ready to fight and the guy's like, yo, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And you're like, oh, I want him. He's a talker. But the guy who doesn't say anything, he's just standing there going like this. You're like, yo, you take him. <laughs> you know, because you know he doesn't need to talk. He's just going to do it. And Thomas doesn't talk a whole lot, but the thing, when he does talk is pretty significant. And there's something about this episode in, this, in, the, in the Gospel of John that is so kind of uh, a valuable text for us to consider 
Because when you look at Thomas, he does not look a lion-hearted person. But I would argue he was. He was incredibly lion-hearted. So let's turn to John chapter 20, and we're going to look through verse 24 to 29. And if you're not uh, familiar with the Bible, it's the last gospel. There's four gospels. So you go to the New Testament, you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Okay? And if you go too far and you see, start seeing Acts, then you know you've gone too far. You want to go back and just go into John. That's where we're going to park for a little while. And we're going to just basically go from 24 to 29. Is everyone there? Everyone has a Bible? Catch up. It's in the, again, the fourth book of the New Testament, the last gospel. And we're going to read. All right? Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Let's pray. Lion of Judah, we thank you for this episode in the Gospel of John. And we know that there's countless stories of your life here, and the gospel tells us that if everything was written about what you've done, there wouldn't be enough libraries in this world to contain it. But yet you have chosen this episode to be included as a means for us to know who you are and know who we are in the midst of this story. So we ask that you stretch our hearts tonight, open our hearts as we're almost halfway through this camp to help us to see and unpack what you want to teach us. And as the theme of this whole conference has been about lion-hearted, how can we use or redeem this incredible episode with Thomas into a place where we can be lion-hearted? In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage comes right after Resurrection Sunday. If you don't know the story, Jesus has been crucified. Three days later, he rose, and then in the, in, the risen, in, the, in the testimonies of the women and other disciples, they have seen the risen Jesus. So it's right after the episode, the disciples were staying together. They're hiding behind locked doors because they're really afraid of the implications of what this means. Because all the religious leaders are now beginning to stir up opposition to this faith. So they're behind lo- locked doors, and only two days earlier, Jesus has been executed. His body was laid. They understand that. So as you can imagine, their minds and emotions were all stretched to the limit. They were just kind of stretched because something crazy just happened. Whatever they, whatever they were feeling, they felt the need to hide away. They were afraid to go outside. Then Jesus appears. 
didn't know how he got in, but he was there. He looked different, but they were able to recognize him. And the first thing he says to them is what? Peace be with you. And then Thomas goes on to this whole exclamation about how I won't believe until the certain things happen. So I'm going to talk about three points. Resurrection doubt, resurrection community, and then resurrection transformation. Resurrection doubt. So even though Thomas earned a negative label, he, was, he wasn't lacking some very good qualities. I think he actually displayed incredible courage and loyalty. There was a scene earlier that when Jesus was going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead because of the danger from those area, he says, let us also go so that we might die with him. So he was, knew the danger of going to Bethany, but Thomas declared, I want to go with them and let's die with Jesus. And Thomas also asked early in the book of John 14, he says, hey, uh, Lord, we don't know when, when, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And because of that question became one of the most important answers, most significant answers in all of the Bible. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was an answer to Thomas's question. So already Thomas is getting this reputation of both courage and loyalty, but also asking questions of Jesus. And then because of this episode, now he's known as, we all heard, Doubting Thomas. But here are some issues of doubt that's been very helpful for me. And if you've been taking the workshop uh, by my brother uh, Calvin, is it? Uh, about doubt or why you believe in your faith, there tends to be two areas of doubt that we all go through. One is deeply emotional and one is deeply intellectual. And that's why whenever I counsel people and they have doubt about their faith, I always have to make a distinction. Is it emotional or is it intellectual? Because if you doubt God's goodness because, or you don't, you doubt the existence of God because it's really hard for you to cognitively understand, hey, how is it possible that a person who dies actually gets risen from the dead after three days? Couldn't it have been that these disciples lied? Because I've never heard of a person dying and then raising after three days unless you've been watching Walking Dead and there's a zombie or you're playing Plants vs. Zombies and those are the times. And I hope that Jesus wasn't a zombie. That's more of this kind of intellectual thing you're just dealing with. It. Or you're kind of dealing with, well, how does God allow us? Like if, you know, Jesus, you're always talking about Jesus being loved, Jesus being this. But then, yo, in my experiences and the way I look around the world, it doesn't look like God is love. People are dying. People are starving. That's more of this kind of like philosophical intellectual that you're working here in your brain to figure it out. And I think Thomas was dealing with that. He's saying, I follow this person. Uh, I actually heard about his death and has been kind of, everybody's been talking about his death. It's obvious he's dead. He's actually been buried in the tomb. It's been three days past. And then he's risen, even though Jesus talked about it over and over again. He just intellectually, maybe he's just thinking, this just doesn't make any sense. But then there's sometimes his emotional aspects. A few years ago, one of our congregation members had his mother diagnosed with extreme aggressive thyroid cancer. And she died like so quickly. Faithful mother, 
one of the most godly mothers. And when she was in her uh, late 50s, she decided she wanted to go to seminary, served in her church. By, you know, she wasn't paid, but she wanted to serve young adults. And he came to our church. I love this, this brother. But then he sat in the hospital room weeping. And he says, Peter, I don't mind my mother dying, but I, don't, I mind that God's putting her through so much pain. That I can't, I, you know, I can't even talk to her right now because all this medicine is just kind of clouding her, that I can't even say goodbye well. That all these machines are just keeping her alive. And I said that to me, and I said, how can I worship a God that does that to my mother who's been so faithfully serving her? That's not an intellectual doubt. That's something deep in his heart. Something that's kind of emotional. Thomas probably felt that too. Because he left everything to follow this man. Which in their mind, he's going to be the lion heart that comes in with power and destroy all the Roman enemies. Just destroy them and then establish a new kingdom. And we've been following this guy saying, yo, yo, yo. Destroy our enemies. Establish a new kingdom. And I followed you. And also, what, what, what? The leader of our movement just died in the most humiliating way. Now, I don't know what images of you see when you see of when Jesus crucified. Most of the images you see is what? Him, like this, with a, a cloth. People weren't crucified like that. He was utterly stripped naked. And to see your leader whom you followed, who you placed all your hope in, to be stripped naked, having a death that's reserved for the most heinous crimes. And to say, I followed him. I gave up everything. Gave up my family, my vocation to follow this man because I had this hope that he was going to establish this great kingdom. And there he is on this cross being mocked, being laughed at. And he's probably having it because in his response is a very bizarre response. He goes, unless I put my fingers where the wounds were, like, or I put my hand on the side, like, that is just, like, there's something wrong with him. Like, can you imagine, like, oh, I'm not going to believe unless Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, I'm going to stick my hand in his side. Like, dude, what's up? Just say, I just want to see him. But he's not happy with just seeing him. He wants to stick his hand in his side. Issues. And he's telling the disciples this. He's in a group of people who just said, you know, we saw him. We saw him. We saw him. And he's like, yeah, I'm glad you saw him. But I didn't. And I need to stick my hand in his side. I'm like, Saul, you know. Ma, fine, whatever. And on initial reading, you're kind of, I, I, like I, when I first read this as a new believer, I was like, man, this Thomas is a jerk. I really can't stand him. But Mark Buchanan wrote an incredible book where he talked about doubt and how important it is. And I want to read it slowly because it's, 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 it's quite a bit to read, but I want you to hear it because I think it's important. Sometimes doubting is not a lack of faith. Okay? He says, sometimes doubting is not a lack of faith, but rather an expression of it. Meaning that it's a way of 
showing that you have faith. Sometimes to doubt is to merely insist that God be taken seriously, which basically means is to say that I want to take this faith seriously. Therefore, I'm going to doubt. It's not frivolous. It's not like, ah, okay, I just believe. But to insist that our faith is placed in and upheld by something other than these tricks. In other words, he says, biblical faith progresses by alternating rhythm. So he's like, it's like walking of yes and no, taking hold of our faith, but also letting go, believing and doubting. And he says, the apostle or the disciple Peter represents that part of our heritage that says, I will believe even though I have not seen. But Thomas represents the other equally part of our heritage that unless I see, I will not believe. More than ever, the strength of our faith must draw from both sides of doubting and believing. Tim Keller says, a faith without some doubt is like a human body without antibodies. People who blindly go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask questions about why they believe as they do will soon find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy, of the probing question, of a question that they're just going to ask, and they're like, oh, I don't know the answer, and they just get destroyed by someone who's just really smart and they're skeptical. They just don't believe, and they'll ask you really good questions. And a person's faith can collapse almost overnight because he or she has failed over the years to listen patiently to his or her own doubts. Which, he says, after long reflection and thinking, you discard these doubts because you've worked it through. And that image of antibodies is so powerful. Because when you get a cold, you get antibiotics. Or when you get a cold, you get immune to certain things. Like my son, as I shared earlier, he was preemie, and he had so many sicknesses in the beginning. And it was almost like every other week he was sick. But the doctor kept assuring us this is a good thing. Because the more sick he gets, the more immune he'll be later on in life. So it's the same thing. He's saying, like, Keller is basically helping us to see. In those moments where you feel that pang, that little, like, oh, I don't know if I really believe this, and you work it through, and you let it kind of just sink in, and you reflect, then actually you get stronger, and you grow. And when I look at the book of Psalms, you know, our church for the last year went through the whole book of Psalms, and I preached with it. And one of the things that we loved about the psalm, why we grip, was gripped by the psalms, is because so much of the psalm is, is a lament. They're going to God saying, I'm hurting. I don't understand. Help me to see. I'm in the dark. All these images of pleading with God. That in the midst of all this, I just don't know. I'm troubled. I can't sleep. And I think that for many of us in our youth groups, and even in my own youth group when I was doing youth ministry, we didn't create a place enough to, to really kind of talk about doubt. So we play a lot of games. And after a while, after a few years of doing youth ministry, I realized all these games were okay, but behind all the games, there were some actual real issues that were their kids were dealing with. And I was horrified. And I'll be honest with you, I'm convinced what you guys go through now as young people, and I'm not trying to patronize or condescend to you, 
you, what you went through was 10 times worse than what I went through when I was growing up in a gang. Because the way you guys are being captured is slow. And as I shared in the first session, it's very private. And you're very good at hiding. You're like masters at hiding. And as I've been in youth ministry long enough, and as I've moved into young adult ministry, and now they're getting married ministry, all this stuff starts coming up as far as as back as when they were 10 years old, 11 years old. I, didn't sh- I shared with you the first night about me repenting, coming before our church, saying I have, I've been diagnosed with diabetes because of a lifestyle that I had where I saw comfort in food. Then that day, all these people came forward. And then weeks after, people came forward. Girls, that, women in our church who says, I've been fighting an eating disorder for 14 years of my life. That I purge myself every time I eat. I've dealt with kids who I didn't realize why they always are wearing jackets in the middle of the summer in long pants. I discovered what happens. They're cutting themselves. Because out of their misery, the only time they can actually feel anything is when they cut themselves. And they're addicted to cutting themselves. But on surface, they look happy, good. I had one youth group girl I shared with earlier with one of my brothers here. She was taking SATs, okay? SATs is like a college entrance exam in the United States. Every student in their senior, junior year, they, they take it to get, and you have to hit a certain score. This girl, every time she went into SAT, within 45 minutes, she fell asleep. And she would do miserably. On every test. And she came to me. I don't know what to do. She's a relatively good student. You know, she, she at least wanted to go into the city college, which is the city university that's, you know, uh, relatively easy to get into. But she couldn't even get into those universities because she wasn't able to pass this test. And I said, well, maybe you should go see a doctor. And then she went to see a doctor. And she was diagnosed with this kind of a unique narcolepsy, which is like a, when you get stressed out, you fall asleep. So then I said, well, let's go to the, the board and ask them, is it possible for her to take the exam in 45-minute inter, you know, uh, increments? And they were able to give it to her. Once the doctor's note said, yeah, she has this condition. Let her take it. She took it, and guess what? She scored great, and she got in. Two days later, she goes, Peter, can we have dinner? I said, of course. Let's, let's have dinner. Let's, let's celebrate. As we're celebrating, she goes, you know, when we're done, I want to thank you. And I said, great. I'm, I'm pretty happy. Shake hands, we're good. And she goes, no, I want you to come back to my house. And I said, what do you, why? She goes, I want to do something for you with my body. I was like, are you Christian? <laughs> like, I was horrified. This is a girl that I've been discipling and helping with to grow in her faith. And she's like, what's wrong with you? Every guy says Yes. And I realized that that's how she was thanking people in her life. And I never even knew that. She knew all the Bible answers. And she's like, it's not adultery, really. And over the course of these years, I've realized more and more that some of you guys are dealing with some stuff 
because you haven't really placed it before God because you're saying, you know what, I'm going to go to youth group and just have fun and play games and play beach volleyball against the girls or against the boys. And I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's, it's okay. There's a place for that. But if that's the only thing in your youth group where you're like, hey, let's go play bowling and, you know, oh, we're going to go watch Finding Nemo. You want to come? Uh, can we go see Avengers? Oh, no, we don't see PG-13 movies. <laughs> PG-13 is a rating system. We only watch G-rated Disney films. You want to come to youth group? <laughs> uh, what do you do youth group? We read the Bible. <laughs> and we sing songs. And we bowl. And we play beach volleyball. <laughs> In a really big room, and we go, (laughs) (laughs) and if that's your youth ministry, it's not going to be able to deal and handle the weight of what you guys are going through. And that's why it scares me to be in this room with you. Because I think there's weights that you're carrying right now that are so incredibly hidden. You can lie to me, you can lie to Ian, you can lie to every single counselor. You can lie to your parents, you're probably good at lying to your parents. But the one person you will never ever be able to hide from is God. And I say that to you not to like, oh, I can't hide from God, so I got, but to hide from God to say, God's looking at you, he wants to grab you and he wants to restore you. And this is his response to Thomas. Because the power of it is not just all this, you know, now that Jesus is looking at him. And again, this is the crazy thing. He moves into resurrection community. Now, this is the part that gets me. It says eight days later, right? Eight days later, what happens? He's still with the disciples. And I'm thinking, yo, do you really believe? Like, are you really doubting or are you just kind of talking? So there's a sense that he wants to kind of like, okay, it's like that passive aggressive. Yo, yo, I won't believe until I touch him. Okay, then leave. Or, or, no, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, I'm just checking it out. It says something about him. He's staying. But what it says about the community is, if he was in my crew, oh, sorry, I shouldn't use that language. If he was in my group, I would have been like, yo, Thomas, you're disgusting, bro. You, you take your hand and your finger, and you, could, you know what to do with it. Get out of here. I want my Lord. I saw him, and you're sitting here getting all nasty. You want to get nasty? Get nasty outside, son. We're the real crew. We believe. We're in this room. We're going to lock this up, and you're going to be on this side. Get out. Out. That would be me. Seriously, that's just how I roll. (laughs) But what's powerful is that the disciples were allowing him to be there. He's in this locker room with them. He's doubting, and they're creating space for him. They're not explicit, but he's invited. You're welcomed here. And I'm saying this to you because I really believe that if you do not have a community of people that can accept your doubt and you don't have a church youth ministry that can accept your doubt, you don't have a group of people that can accept your doubt, you're in a bad community. That if you feel pressure, like the minute you walk into a room and you feel pressure not from the inside but from the outside that people are like, hey, 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 I want you to be 
Stop asking questions. Just believe, son. Just read the Bible. It's true. Just believe. Come on, stop, stop, stop asking. If you're in that community of people, then you got to be like, yo, I have a right to ask. Because this is important stuff, people. It's incredibly important. That a community is a people of doubters that come together and say, let's doubt together, let's believe together, and let's hold each other up. There are days, that's why for me, when I have a community of people, what's the most powerful thing is that because the power of the Holy Spirit kind of orchestrates this amazing thing, is when I'm low in my faith, guess what happens? God gives power to another guy in my group, and they lift me up. I've never been in a situation where we're all down. Never. Never been in a situation where I've been in a fellowship group. I walk into the fellowship group, and I share my heart, and I say, yo, this is what I'm going through. And everyone's like, yeah, us too, and we all fall apart. And so let's go drinking, and let's party. Yeah, you know what? Forget the faith. Let's go. Party. Never. That every situation, when another brother is coming up, and they're saying, yo, brother, because guys, I just, this week has been rough, and I just don't know how I can follow him anymore. Because this is huge, bro. It's just, it's huge. And then all of a sudden, two guys are just on it. Or another three guys, like, yeah, me too. And then we just combine, and there's just this incredible community of people just say, yo, we're with you. We're going to get through this together. We're going to pray this out. We're going to meet God together. And here's what Thomas is doing. He's feeling this not only the, the truth of the resurrection, but the life of the resurrection within the community. And they're all a community of people who are repenting together. And that's what I think, as I was trying to unpack even this morning, is that our, our, our primary call to God is not just simply our obedience, but our repentance, meaning that I, we're just repenting. We're just saying, you know what? There's so many things that are broken with me, but I'm not broken, but you are, you are completely fi- fixable of all these things, and I'm holding on to you and your goodness. And we point to him. Ian shared that one of the things we lost in the church is this liturgical aspect or this part of the worship where we confess and we confess to one another. In our church, we always have a time of confession and assurance. And if you really look at what confession and assurance is, it's basically confronting and then comforting. And you need a group of friends that will confront you. If you have friends that never confront you, they're not your friends. If they're always like, hey, hey, something wrong with you. Yo, yo, where's your, oh, your Bible. How come it's never been touched? Come on. Hey, well, how many times you pray? If they're always confronting you, that's a problem. But if they never confront you, they're always like, oh, you haven't gone to youth group for like 10 years? It's okay. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. That's a huge problem. So if they're always confronting, never comforting, or they're always comforting, never confronting, that's a problem. And that's why that rhythm of confessing, saying, I have a hard time believing, but also giving us the assurance is important as it forms our heart to be courageous. Courageous in believing in the gospel. And I think 
what's so powerful is that we need to remind ourselves of the good news, and we always constantly need to be reminded ourselves that this is actually good news that we believe in. It's not a set of laws. It's not youth group. It's not Sunday service. It's not, you know, these things that we do for church, not the things that we do when we study the Bible, but actually it's something much more deeper, that it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And some of us lost that. And one of the illustrations I always give is that if my... If Ian called me up and says, hey, Peter, can I talk to you? And I'm like, sure. And, P- and, and Ian says, you know what? Jamie, your wife, is doing well, and so is Nico and Noah. Is that good news? It's okay news. It's nice to know. Okay, great. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for that information. My wife and my sons are doing well. Ten minutes later, he comes out to me. He goes, yo, yo, Peter, 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 Peter. Come, 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 come. And I'm like all nervous. Well, what's the matter? He goes, hey, Jamie and Nico and Noah are doing well. I'm like, what's your problem? You told me 10 minutes ago that they're fine. Is it good news? Now it's becoming not good news. It's just becoming annoying. <laughs> Third time, he goes, Peter, Peter, come here, come here. Wait, 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 before you preach, come here, come here. I'm like, what, Ian? And Ian's like, guess what? I said, let me guess. Jamie, Nico, and Noah are, are, are fine, right? He's like, yes, thank you. Now get away. Because now it's just like, stop telling me that my wife and my son are doing fine. That's not good news. It's annoying news. But what if, what if an hour before I found out that they were involved in a car accident, that Jamie was thrown out of the car and she's in the hospital, Nicholas does not seem like he's going to make it, and Noah's 99% not going to make it. And then he comes up to me and says, Peter, come here. And I was like, what? Jamie's going to make it. Nico's doing amazing. And Noah's completely out of the woods. Is that good news? Absolutely. For some of us, we forgot the bad news. You forgot who you were before Christ. You forgot what you could be before Christ. You think you're good. You think, yo, yo, I'm, I'm doing all right, yo. I'm managing well. And you're like, you have no idea who you would have been apart from him. And you forget. So when you interact with people, you forget, yo, I'm good. No, you're not good. You're saved. You're forgiven. And some of us have been on this walk for so long, that's all it is to you. Oh, yeah, I'm doing okay. It's the most common thing. Yo, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. But there's times we need to take pause and say, actually, I'm not doing all right. That's why when my cousins first came to America, they never understood American language or English language. Because when they first came to America, people were like, hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? And they're like, oh, well, actually. And they actually explain how they're doing. And they're, and they're like, oh, no, no, I didn't really want to know how you were doing. It's just a greeting. How are you? And we maybe do that in church. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Okay, good, man. We're out. But to really say, hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. Really? Are you really doing fine? Because I'm not doing fine. This is hard. Actually, it's not hard. It's impossible. But we all think, with God, all things are possible. And I think as young people, we, we fight doubt or we teach our kids to doubt. And Barnabas Piper, you don't know who Barnabas Piper is. It's John Piper's son. And John Piper is this famous American pastor. And he says this. He says, don't fight unbelief in your kids. Don't fight it. At least don't think of it as fighting. 
Belief ultimately is a miracle. Death made life by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit could work in a myriad of ways, and questioning is a significant one. If your child has questions, isn't sure about the Bible, and doesn't know what to believe, those are just likely to be opportunities for the Spirit to liven his heart for a drift into a rebellion. As parents, our job is to declare and display the work of the Spirit, our relationship with God, so that children can see where the answers to those questions truly lie. Don't argue. Answer. Don't fight. Show an example. Don't give up. Pray. A few years ago, my wife and I got on our hands and knees and we prayed for our older son, Nicholas. Because Nicholas is getting to that age where he's asking questions. And because he's a pastor's kid, we're very scared. Because, you know, pastor kids, they wind up to be really crazy people. Missionary kids, crazy people. And one of our first prayers is that we wanted Nicholas to have his own faith. We want him to claim it. Not just that we say and they believe. And then, of course, God, in his great sense of humor, answers that prayer. My older son does not believe most of the time. And I remember one time where we're, and Halloween is a holiday in America. Do you have Halloween in England? Where you get a pumpkin, do you use pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns? And then you, you know, do fa- So uh, one day, we're doing jack-o'-lantern. Uh, and, of course, I was not prepared to do jack-o'-lanterns, so I didn't have any tools except for, like, you know, some horrible knives in our house. And you can't really use knives on pumpkins. It's, like, useless. So here I am trying to, you know, do this pumpkin, and, my, and he's, like, yelling at me. Daddy, how come you're so weak? <laughs> how come you have no neck? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> how come you're so weak? And I was like, I'm trying, all right? Just give me a break. And then all of a sudden, he blurts out, you know, what's the use of God if he, if he can't even do this uh, pumpkin? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I just pray to God that he would, he would help you make this pumpkin. What's the point of praying? It's better to pray to Superman, like in my face. It's better to pray to Superman. I was like, okay, God, my son is about to meet you right now. <laughs> or he's going to meet somebody right now because I am about to, like, destroy him. And I'm holding back. And I looked at him. And then all of a sudden, he has tears in his eyes. He goes, I hate God. He's useless. He's useless, Daddy. He can't even fix a pumpkin. And he creates the heaven and the earth. I think it's all lies. And I saw tears in his eyes. And I said, why is that getting you so upset? He goes, I feel like I pray so long. And I want to touch him and I want to feel him. And I feel like if I can just touch him and feel him, I, I, would, I would believe. And then with tears in my eyes, I said, yeah, I, I feel the same way. And he goes, is God stronger than Superman? And I said, Superman's not real. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he started crying more. No, just kidding. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know if you believe that he's stronger than Superman. That's okay. But I'll tell you this one thing, Nicholas. Superman doesn't love you. He doesn't even know you exist. All these things that you think are stronger than him or that can love you better than you than him, even if you think, you know, daddy's better than God or whatever because he, he, at least you can touch me. But I will tell you the truth right now. I can honestly tell you that he I can love you, but God will love you so much more. And that's all I can tell you. But I understand why you're upset right now. Because you want this. 
And I think that moment was very transformative for both of us. Very transformative. And then even when he prays now, it's very sincere. It's very yearning for, for more. Like, I want to know you, God, but I can't see you. And that's an honest prayer. That's a good prayer. It's a psalmist prayer. And I hope that one day, and I hope you pray for my sons. Our church prays for our sons all the time. That their faith will grow in the midst of kind of doubting. Finally, resurrection transformer. Uh, transformation transformer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my mind. Jesus shows up unexpectedly. And his greeting is what? Peace be with you. Thomas missed it. Now he's posturing, and he's fixed on the tomb as a place of death. That's all he sees the tomb as. But the gospel is showing him that the tomb is actually a place of life and hope, and he's about to experience it. Because when he was gazing upon the tomb, or when we look at the tombs in our lives, that you're called to like, hey, have a lion heart, but there's just these, these tombs. And when you see these tombs, you're basically saying, you know what? It's a place of death. It's a place of brokenness. But here's something that he does, which is so powerful. His statement to Thomas shows two things. It's an invitation to come. And that blew my mind the first time I ever read it. Because again, if I was God, and Thomas was running around after I've been crucified and died and, and overcame death, and he's running around saying, I want to stick my hand in you and my fingers in you, I would have been like, hey, Thomas, come here. I would have destroyed him. And when I read it for the first time, I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? He says, come. Come. Not only is he showing his presence and his invitation, it's showing that he was actually, he, was, he saw Thomas in the midst of his doubt. Did you catch that? He wasn't there when, you know, like most people say, hey, 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 look. Uh, he's inviting him. But what is he inviting? He's actually inviting him, meeting him exactly what he wanted, what he said. I want to see him. I want to stick my fingers, and I want to stick my hand inside. It's showing Thomas that he heard him eight days ago. And he's meeting Thomas exactly where he needs to be. And I'm... When I read this text, I see that because then the text doesn't say that Thomas went over to stick his hand, right? It was like a bluff. He didn't stick his hand. He didn't stick his finger in him. What he needed, he needed God's understanding or his presence and his intimacy and to know that he knows me. And what's so powerful is that, that he becomes this, he declares, my Lord, my God. Peter doesn't do that. But he's the first one to declare that. And to see Jesus respond so kindly, he invites him, shows just again this pattern of the gospel to say every time we reject, he receives. Peter rejected him. We're going to learn about that in the next couple of sessions. Christ gave him redemption. Thomas rejected the, the resurrection. Christ gave him redemption. And what happens to Thomas? Doubting Thomas does not stay a doubter. When he sees the risen Christ, all that Jesus has taught over the years now clicks. Everything makes sense now. 
In his death, and to his death, uh, Thomas is an outspoken advocate for his Lord. And then we know in church history that he preaches in the ancient Babylon near the Tigris and the Euphrates River where Iraq is now today. He travels to Persia, present-day Iran, and continues to win disciples to the Christian faith. He sails to Malabar on the west coast of India in 52 AD. He preaches established churches and wins to Christ high-caste high Brahmins as well as others. When the Portuguese land in India in the 1600s, they find a, a group of Christians there, the Mar Thomas Church, established through Thomas preaching a millennium and a half before. Then finally, Thomas travels to the east coast of India, preaching relentlessly. He is killed near Malapur around 72 AD, near present-day Madras. Tradition tells us that he is thrown into a pit and pierced through with a spear by a Brahmin. This is Thomas. This is Thomas who fervently proclaimed that his unbelief carried the Christian message of love and forgiveness to the ends of the earth in his generation. Lionheart started with him doubting. And some of us in this room are saying, God, just give me a lion heart. Give me just courage. And I say to you, courage that's not been formed in trouble, not formed in doubt, is not real. You know, I've been doing martial arts for over 10 years. There's days I wish I just could... Just be good. I can destroy every opponent that I ever come up to. Whenever I go into my dojo and this guy comes up, I'm like, yo, I want to just destroy you. And then he destroys me. And I say, God, just give me, you know, just like, you know, it's like, you know, the Matrix. You see the movie Matrix? You just plug in. You like piano, and then you, oh, I know Kung Fu. You know, and uh, he does Kung Fu. And there's times I wish I had that, but then I realize, you know, all the times of training, all the times I hurt myself, all the times I broke my ribs, all the times that I got hit in the face. I said all those were ways that I grew and been formed. The way I love my wife now, I wish sometimes I said, God, just give me a heart to love my wife because she's such a strong woman, strong Chinese woman. She scares me. Give me strength to love her and be humble before her. But I was like, God doesn't know. I'm not going to just give you a heart to be courageous, but I'm going to form you over the years of trouble that you've been through and struggles with your wife. The years that you fought, you doubted that she loved you. And in that, there's this depth of character that you can have. Doubting is an opportunity for God to speak. Let's pray. Father, we look to you and how you deal with Thomas. We look to you because you're so perfectly insightful and exactly what Thomas needs. Even though just days before you were on the cross, even though you told them you'd be risen, you met Thomas exactly where he needed to be. And I pray for us in this room. I don't know. I don't know if they're ready to come clean with each other in a community of resurrection. Or they need to come clean with you. I don't know if they're ready. It's not my job. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. But if the Holy Spirit is prompting some young people in this room to say, you know what? I cut myself. Or you know what? Every time I eat, I need to escape for a few minutes 
because I need to purge myself. Or you're in this room just maybe like, hey, I don't, yo, that's not even my issue. I just, I'm bored at church. I don't even believe in this stuff. And I need to come clean. Again, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit, not the music in the background to motivate us and get us into this kind of emotional fervor. But just to ask the Spirit just to move and say, this is who I am, God. This is why I doubt. This is why I am. And I need to come clean. And here's this opportunity that at this camp with counselors that have heard the message say, you know what? We need to help these young people. Or maybe even counselors in this room are struggling with that. And they need to come clean. Or maybe myself, as I'm preaching this, I'm starting to think, yo, there's some things I need to just come clean with you about things that I'm struggling to believe. I'm not immune to it because I'm a preacher. So I pray, Lord, that we take this opportunity with courage, with a lion heart to say, I, you know, I have courage to do it because the Bible tells me that as a people of God, that we're people of light. We're no longer in darkness. And I pray for these young people because I love them. But I pray for these young people because I know you love them and you're telling them right now, I see you. And I want you. I am the Lion of Judah. I want you to be clothed in me, to be in union with me, to be together with me, so that you know the promise and the goodness of who I am. I pray this all in Jesus' name.